Look at them, madame. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Oh. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rupert, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Now, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Oh, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. From Spain and two from Japan I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan I got a plenty from Poland but none from Sudan Or from Fiji or Uzbekistan Stamp collecting happens when we dream together Live from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania This is the award-winning stamp show here today Episode number 305 Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Cash. This is Mark. This is Albert. This is Becca. And uh, episode number 305 uh, was lost to the podcast demon, so we are redoing it today. So we are bringing you back to. Uh, Two weeks ago to episode number 305. Yes, it is out of order, but it is the numbers and we go by the numbers. So uh, we wanted to do an outreach because a really good friend of PSE, a personal friend, a friend of really all expertizing, Dick Seller, passed away. And he was a great fellow. He was really great. And I met him several times, you know, many, many times. And he would always help you. He was always there for you. He, I, people who are listening who know of him probably know how nice of a guy he was. Uh, he was a plater. That's what he was mostly known for, although he worked a lot with the uh, Classic Society. Uh, he wrote a couple articles, but, you know, that's really not what he's known for. And, you know, he signed scrolls and stuff like that. But his uh, contribution to the hobby was really super immense. And anyway, so he was a plater. So we are going to discuss, in memory of him, plating, what it is, why you should know it, and uh, how it is used. So, Albert, uh, you have a Nikon book in front of you. Why don't you tell people what plating is and then tell them what a Nikon book is? Well, uh... The act of plating is uh, on the early stamps, uh, they were printed usually with only a couple of plates. And because um, they were printed crudely and they had to, uh, they had to uh, lay down impressions and then sometimes hammer them out and re re um, reuse a transfer roll on them, leaving double transfers. Um, it's possible to actually, if you know how to look at a stamp, to, to uh, actually find where this stamp actually belongs on the original plate plate, what plate it is, what the plate position is. Um, the book I have in front of me is a book that was written by a, a very famous collector of one cent, 1851-57s, Mortimer, 
Nell Nikin, who was also later the uh, the experts chairman at the Philatelic Foundation. Mr. Nikin wrote the famous book, The United States, One Cent Stamp of 1851 to 1861. And uh, in it, he has uh, plating charts of, uh, of, uh, of uh, all 12 plates that they used, actually it's 13 plates because you count plate one early and plate one late as two different plates. But they have drawings of all the plate positions he was able to ascertain as of the time of publication, which was in the in the late 60s or early 70s. And uh, we use this book all the time in order to determine if um, um, what a particular what a particular stamp was. I have a book out because. Um, a perforated uh, one cent stamp was uh, submitted to us and I, it, it turned out to be a, a B relief from plate 11 and all B reliefs from plate 11 happen to be type 3 A's. That means broken at the top or broken at the bottom. So that makes it a Scott number 22. So I was able to use the book and ascertain that. Yeah, I mean, plating is very, very important on this early issue because the plate position determines the Scott number, which, you know, in the last podcast, it has gone to the uh, podcast heaven. Uh, we were talking, Mark, do you remember what we were talking about, whether uh, these numbers should actually exist? Right. I mean, but not for the Nikon book. Would we be looking at the one cent 1851 um, Blue Franklin as a single Scott number? Yeah. Instead of, you know, the, the dozen or so that, uh, that that it has. Yeah, you'd have, like, U.S. number. It would probably be U.S. number five, although, you know, number three and number four really don't belong where they are. Right. So then. you would kind of have number one, number two, and then number three would be the one-cent imperf, and then you'd just have a whole bunch of varieties. Right, yeah. It would be a, a number 3A, 3B. 3C, yeah. or, or even th uh, like they used to do with number 11s, you'd have number 11, and then you'd have recut inner lines, not recut inner lines, recut triangles, stuff like that. And um, like number five, should number five have its own number? It seems to me that the, that the Scott number should be for the most common version of that design, and then you have uh, subcategories or, or, or small um, uh, lowercase letters for all the specialties. Yeah. For those who don't remember way, way, way back in what, 2006? Is that when they uh, busted number 11 into 11 and 11A? Right. So, something around there. Um, they basically took the stamp. And following the one cent, you have number seven, and then you have number nine has recut sort of frame lines, recut uh, value strip and U.S. postage strip. You know, it's just got a line recut. So since U.S. seven and then U.S. number nine is recut, somebody got the idea that U.S. number 11 would be uncut inner frame lines and U.S. number 11A would have recut interframe lines. I can kind of see how they could might do that, but how many, uh, I believe there's 24 one-cent varieties between the perf and the imperf. And 
again, you know, my whole thing is we should be making the hobby easier, not more difficult. Right. I would say in the case of the of the tens and elevens, the A designation, the capital A designation, came after long consideration, um, and and then you know, uh, and those uh, pictures were added to the catalog and added to. Um, you know the album pages, so yes. there's a space for them. Whereas, uh, you know, five through uh, you know twenty four, um, you know what? You know, did the album page come first? <laughs> well, if you recall back in when did they change the numbering system in the Scotts catalog? In the forties. In the forties, yeah. In the late forties. Because between eighteen nineties and nineteen forties. That three cent Washington stamp was U.S. number 33. And it was U.S. number 33 if it was orange brown, if it was regular colored, if it was recut inner frame lines, whatever it was. The reason the Scott's numbering system changed is that uh, some of the provisional stamps were actually the start, oh, yeah. of, were the start of the numbering. Yeah, number one was the Alexandria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, not you, uh, not the Benjamin Franklin Five Center. That was number twenty-seven or twenty-eight. I forget which one. No, thirty-three, thirty-two, thirty-one. It was number twenty-nine. And uh, so you know they renumbered it so that the first stamp of the United States was the first stamp of the general issue. But getting back to plating again, you know, how is number five? Which, by the way, for people who don't know, it, Albert, why don't you give people a, a rundown on how U.S. Number Five was created? Because this, it, once you understand how it was created, then you can sit there and go, "Did this really deserve a number?" Well, the, the original, the original transfer, the original die and transfer roll had had full full ornaments at top and bottom. And when it was uh, when it, when they started to use plate when they started to transfer plate one early, they started from the they started from the right hand side, and they transferred the top row. And then they but the, by figuring that out in measurements, they figured it would they they wouldn't all fit on the plate, so they uh, they turned the plate over and hammered it out. It was, it was a soft steel plate at the time. They went on and hammered it out, and then they. Uh, uh, they started to lay down lesser lesser impressions. The thing that makes number five plate seven R one early significant is it's got it's got the full plumes and balls at the bottom of the of the design, which is the only only uh, position on the plate plate of two hundred that has that, and that's why it's such a desired stamp. And it's called the type one. Um, you're talking about a stamp now that cats ninety or a hundred thousand dollars right now. Well, sells for. No, cat's higher. I think it's up uh, over 150, isn't it? 150. Well, it's, or something? it's hard to say because what is very fine on that stamp. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm just turning the catalog to. I mean, hearkening back to Mr. No, in, in 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 the catalog right now, a very fine catalog's um, only fifty-five thousand dollars. Oh, that's that's way low. Um, speaking of Mr. Dick Seller, I was at. Pacific 97 when he was going through uh, a dealer stock and uh, 
Bobby, hey, you, you know the story, so uh, he, he, this is no spoiler alert for you, but Mr. Bobby Prager, great friend of the show, great dealer, had a box of basically discount stamps. And Dick Seller found a U.S. number five that was priced at $19.95 because he knew what the plate marks were. And U.S. number five, again, it has complete plumes at the top, complete plumes at the bottom. Well, this stamp was poorly cut. The plumes at the top and plumes at the bottom were cut off with scissors. You know, it, it didn't exist on the stamp. But there are other tells, namely the O in postage and that entire lettering that will tell you that it's a U.S. number five. And uh, like and strong double transfer into in the right, in, into the right cameo that uh, is very distinctive too. Yeah, because what they did was when they started from the right side and they went over to position number seven. That was the last one they did, and they said, "Hey, this isn't going to work." So they hammered it all out. Well, position number seven maintained enough of the old design when they put the new design in. It still showed a lot of the plumes and things like that. So plate number five is an anomaly of the production of the plate. Position the, five. Po, uh, excuse me, no, position number seven. Oh, yeah. We got that, I, I screwed up on this in the uh, <laughs> podcast that uh, is now in heaven someplace. I kept saying position number five. No, it's <laughs> position number seven, play, uh, US number five. Right. And uh, so the question was, you know, because it has a double transfer and it shows the plumes at the top and the bottom a little more than normal, does it really deserve a plate number or a, a catalog number? And if your if your um, motivation is to promote the hobby, wouldn't you want to make completeness more attainable? Yeah. Uh, whereas if you if you have a number five and and it's so such an expensive stamp, um, which is really just a variety of of a particular issue, um, you know, does it make it that much more difficult to to you know create a complete U.S. collection? And the other thing is, people find a and this happens literally all the time. A person finds a one cent Franklin, and it may even be perforated. But they go into the Scott's catalog, they see the picture, and they go, yes, that is a stamp, and it is. Mm -hmm. That's a stamp. So you look down, and the very thing right underneath it is U.S. number five, $55,000. And they think they won the lottery. When, in fact, you have a number five, then after that you have number six, then after that you have number seven, then you have number eight, then you have number 8A, then you have number nine. So you have several of these, but the people go to the next one. And actually, I see this a lot with number 65. So a person will find a Civil War three-cent Washington U.S. number 65. You see the picture? Right below it, three-cent stamp, 64. So everybody thinks they have a really valuable stamp. Again, it is not making stamp collecting easy for people. It is making it difficult for people. It is my opinion that number five, being an anomaly, really should never have been cataloged. 
I mean, it could be a variety that has a premium to it, but it shouldn't have its own number. That's my opinion. Do you anticipate that we might in the future see a major reshuffling of the Scott numbers? No. No. Not when something is that high a catalog value. They, they would never destroy, like, that much value. It would be irresponsible because of, of all the collectors and all the, all the previous interest in the stamp and all the money that's been put into it. Some of the greatest one-cent covers are number fives on cover, which are up to a quarter-million-dollar covers. The first day, there's a number five on a first-day cover. And so, you know, to say, oh, yeah, th this is the same as this other one that was printed three years later and stuff, you know, you'd be just destroying so much value that you, you would have a, it, it would be bloody. Yeah, it's not like it's not like the premier gravures which used to be listed as major Scott numbers. That was Scott fifty-five to sixty-two. Um, only three or four of those issues actually were used. Um, the the, uh, the ten cent stamp, is, which is which is as a premier gravure, has Scott number fifty-eight, but is a, as an unused real stamp at sixty-two B. That's one of them. And then uh, Scott number sixty, which is a twenty-four cent stamp. That that is also in the catalog as 70, 70 small c. So yeah, they do change numbers. I mean, they took away the uh, China clay papers. They delisted all those because they found out that you know, there's no really such thing as China clay, and it pissed off you know some people. Well, it, we, those of us who were those of us who were around when they first put China clay in which was partially for the, through the work of Roy White when he was working with the BF, with the Philatelic Foundation around 1980. We were very cynical about it because we couldn't tell what they were. And um, uh, it, uh, and it's ironic that now, 30 years later, they got delisted. Well, we'll see what happens with 486A. That's the 30-cent no-watermark. Uh, Franklin Four, 476A. Or 476A. I'm terrible with 476 numbers. capital A. Which we know doesn't exist because we've proven that we've proven in that every copy that's been submitted to us has a watermark. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to see. I mean, and the funny thing there is that you will see people listing the stamp as ghost watermark, and I sit there and go, "Well, there's no such thing as ghost watermark. It's either watermark or no watermark." And a ghost watermark sort of like makes pretend that you know you have an out. It's sort of like a middle ground. And it's like being pregnant, you know. There is no middle ground. You either are or you aren't. So, uh, yeah, for um, plating-wise, a lot of these one-cent stamps and three-cent stamps, but really one-cent stamps, to find the Scott catalog number, they need to be plated, especially when you get into U.S. number 8s and U.S. number 8As. And, Albert, why don't you uh, describe what the difference between an 8 and an 8A is? Well, an 8A is when the top line and the bottom line is have a, has a break in it, a discernible break at both top and bottom. And an 8A is a stamp that has a break at either uh, on either the top or the bottom, but not both. And uh, number 8s only occur... Here's a good little rule of thumb. When you're looking at the Scott's catalog, if you see the Scott catalog number... And then it says like one cent blue, and then parentheses it says plate number four. You know you're dealing with plating. 
and that is uh, rife through the 1857 and kind of in the 1861 issue also. The 1861 issue, uh, or excuse me, 1857 issue. 1851 and 1857 issue. Uh, in 1857, they started perforating everything. And when they started perforating everything, they said, oh, you know these plates we made? They suck. <laughs> and so in 1857, they started laying out a bunch of other plates. But like uh, plate number 11 and 12, why don't you talk about those? Because those are interesting. Well, they were they were laid out. They were laid out and used late from 1860 and 61. Uh, they uh, the, their usage ended early because of the start of the Civil War. They had to replace the stamps with the 1861 issue because of the number of stamps that were in Confederate post offices. Um, the plate 11 plates 11 and 12 do have plates. Plate 12 does have a full design like a, ty a type one um, on the top rows and on the bottom rows. And uh, um, so, if you wanted to fake a number five, you could get a stamp from plate twelve and chop off the perforations. Except that wouldn't work because it has a characteristic. It has a characteristic. It has a main, a big characteristic. There's a big dot in the left hand to the left of uh, the Franklin bust in the cameo area. But it fills the spot. Actually, so does a number nine from that position, right? Which is what I have in mind, and I too. Well, Mr. <laughs> Nikon, Mr. Nikon specifically wrote that um, he said that it's in the author's opinion that the catalog description should be changed to read as follows: the type one has a curved line outside the labels with postage and one cent. The scrolls below the lower label are turned over, forming little balls. The outer curved line at top is complete. The scrolls at the top are substantially complete. The bottom line, bottom corner plumes, and the side ornaments are also complete. The reason for this this change in the catalog description, all the plates from all the type one plates from plate twelve would not qualify if given this description. Yep. Which by the way, getting to number nines. Plate number one early, because there's two states of the plate. They cleaned them up afterwards, and as a matter of fact, that's one of the things that was going on with the plating. The seventh stamp was later reinforced, the plate cleaned, stuff like that, and then it was recut at the top and the bottom, Albert? Yeah. Yeah, both top and bottom. And that turned a number five into a number nine. Right but it's still that position. Right. So that's why it's a cool item. And that stamp as a number nine has a hefty premium to it for people who put it into the number five position. Especially if you're, uh, especially if you uh, like to collect imperf multiples. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> like, 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 uh, like you do. Yes, I bought one. I, I paid a lot for it because I thought it was really cool. So, yeah, on the three center, it's more pronounced because when the printing companies were making these plates, it was a banknote printing company. And they went into the bidding process saying, you know, a plate will generate about 20,000 presses. Then we pull it off, we clean it up, 
And then we get 20,000 more, 40,000 presses. The plates that ended up being used, I think, were between 150 and 200,000 presses. So they were way past their uh, life of their expected life. And so they had a lot of cleaning. They had a lot of recutting. They changed the colors of the stamp. Some of the stamp ink damaged the plates. Uh, some of the plates were not hardened enough in the first time, so they rehardened them the second time after doing really extensive reworking on them. And so... Some of the plates show wonderful large cracks on them, like the big crack on plate two. And all the and all the all the all the uh, little cracks on plate three, which uh, meant that eventually they had to take that plate out of out of use. Well, that was a big thing uh, that they discovered when they were redoing the uh, eighteen seventy six reprints of everything, the special printings. They went to the print office and said, "Hey." send us these old plates. And they sent them the old plates and they couldn't use them because they were old and rusty and everything. Well, one of the things that was always a question is what happened to plate number zero? And it wasn't actually numbered zero, it was unnumbered. So, you know, over on the side, they all said, you know, plate number one, plate number two, this one never had a number on it. So they called it plate number zero. They found the paperwork, and this was actually Wilson Hume. And they found the paperwork in the archive, and they said, yeah, we got all the plates, and two of them are broken. One of them is broken so much that it can't be used. It had an actual corner busted off of it. So we knew plate number five was one of the cracked ones. And they go, well, all the other plates, they have plate number one through 18, and then this other one with a broken corner. And they go, that's plate zero. That's what happened. It broke. And that was a mystery that was only solved, uh, what, 19, early 1990 or something yeah. from going into the archives. Totally off the subject. Um, yeah, so uh, recuts. Uh, if you're looking for a number five, the best thing to look for is it's got two position dots at the upper right so if you can't see the top and the bottom like Mr. Seller he couldn't see the top and the bottom they were literally missing from the stamp but the top right had two position dots and the O in postage has sort of wings in the middle of it and it's hard to describe but the O is you know it's a white O with a blue background and out of the middle are these two little blue wings sticking up through the top of the O. When you see that, you know you've got that position. So everybody pull out their number ones and look for winged O's. Not number ones. You're talking about I'm one, one cent number nines. One cents, yeah. Yeah, on a number nine or a number seven that would make it a number five both of them they're premium items like i said everybody wants to fill that spot in their album so what other plating is important well plating is important in in early 
in early stamps worldwide because many of these plates were printed very crudely with typeset. An example of that would be the Hawaiian it would be the Hawaiian numerals from 1859 to 1865. That's a biggie, yeah. You have just 10 positions, and uh, they, they kept reusing the type, and but sometimes after each printing, it sometimes would move it around or move positions around. But the only way you can authenticate the stamp is first by plating the stamp. And the way you plate the stamp is you determine which of the, which of the 10 subtypes it is, and then you... Uh, and then you compare the uh, you compare it to the plating photos in the Westerberg book. And this is the uh, numerals of Hawaii. They're they're just you know normal stamps, and it has a border that says Hawaiian Islands. It has the value, and then in the smack in the middle, instead of having a picture or anything, it has either a one or a two or a five. Right. So these are called the numerals because really all it is is a numeral. But the plate, they are so widely faked. I mean, huge number of fakes. And so if you plate them, that's how you expertize them. If they don't plate, it's not real. Also, in general, the corners don't meet up. Most of the fakes, the corners, the, the corners meet up nicely, and that's a, and a good indication that it's not real. Yeah, they, when they were doing the outer frame line. You know, if you're faking a stamp, you just want it to look nice. So you draw a nice little outline of the borders and everything. They're nice and strong and everything. That wasn't on the normal stamps. And then the other thing you have to be aware of is how it's printed. The uh, genuine stamps are printed on a small on a small typeset uh, press. So that means that the uh, uh, that the line the lines and the type actually punch through to the other side of the paper. Most of the fakes are lithographed, in other words, printed with a stone, and so they don't have the impression of the lines or the ink going all the way through to the other side. Yep. So, but, but, but many, many, many stamps worldwide, the early stamps, um, have to be plated. It's, it's all the early Japanese stamps, which mm -hmm. are equally hugely counterfeited. A lot of the early German state stamps have to be, be plated. It's easy to plate the early Great Britain stamps because they actually have letters that tell you which which plate position it is. No, they have the number of what plate. Yeah, right. if you want to do plating, uh, Britain number thirty three. You know, you can plate them all out because it has the plate number and it has the position on every single stamp. So is that where you would suggest a beginner start plating, or? Yeah, that's that's really super low hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> well, one step where the plate difference makes makes sense to have a separate catalog number, uh, I'm thinking of the two cent uh, red Washington head that had the five yeah. uh, in in place of the two uh, accidentally, um, and I'm thinking of Scott number five oh five, which is the perf eleven. That also comes perf ten, Scott number four. Uh, 67, and then there's an imperforate. Yeah, 485. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, those are uh, fun. And and they're they're attainable, you yeah. know, especially 505 is, is attainable to a regular collector. Um, and in that case, you've got, you know, you've got something here. You know, here's, here's in this particular plate position, somebody put in a 5 instead of a 2. Yep. And then there's uh, the two also that I like is one is a bridge over Niagara Falls, 
which is on the 1827 issue. It's a green stamp with the picture of Niagara Falls, and it's got a line going across the waterfall. And they call it Bridge Over Water, uh, Niagara Falls. And then the second one is there's a double transfer. And by the way, a double transfer is when they put the image on, onto the plate, and they go, ah, we screwed up. They turn the plate over because it's soft steel. They hammer it out with a real hammer, turn it back over, and then put the image in again. And on the 30-cent bison stamp, the brown bison stamp of the same issue, the stamp was a little too far to the right. So they turned it over, hammered it out, and they moved it back over. But the 30 in the lower right-hand corner still shows the image of the prior 30, which was a little bit to the right. And it's a rather striking double transfer. I like that one. It's really a neat-looking double transfer. So those particular stamps, Scott Catalog didn't create a separate number for them. Mm -hmm. It's more of a it's more of a a specialty item within that catalog number. Yep. Yeah, but they did give it a substantial uh, value. The uh, double transfer at lower right on the thirty cent catalogs uh, four hundred fifty dollars against twenty two dollars and fifty cents for the regular stamp. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it lifts the uh, bridge over Niagara Falls. Yeah, bridge over Niagara Falls, which is uh, Scott Scott number five sixty eight. That's uh, four hundred seventy five dollars against a thirteen dollars and fifty cent catalog. Yep. So you know these plate varieties have significant value, and like I we said before, they would still have the significant value if it didn't have its own number. Although U.S. number five, I don't think it would be as valuable if they didn't give it a spot in the catalog. Well, since it was always a heavily desired stamp from the time that they were, was written about by, uh, um, well, by Mr. Tiffany in the 1890s and mm -hmm. then by Luff and then uh, by uh, both uh, Carol Chase and uh, Stanley B. Ashbrook starting in around in the teen, 19, in the teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s, um, I think they made made Scott number five into a highly desirable stamp. And most of the customers that most of the people that I have, I know, um, will try to get one if whether they can get it or not. And will always try to fill the space with something, even if it's just a, a Scott number nine with the same plate position. Yep. Okay. So here, hold on. Let's let's concede then that number five, because it is so popular and uh, you know accepted early on and stuff like that. Give me the reason for number six and number six A. Six A is because it, number six comes from the bottom of plate four, and it has it's the. One, it's the, it's only, it's 20 stamps that have complete plumes at the bottom, plumes and balls at the bottom. And we care because? Because it's substantially, it's substantially different than, than all the other stamps. Hey, I would, yeah. Well, if you want to talk about a unique, another unique position that, that, uh, um, that people pay a lot of money for, it's a position... Position 99R2, which is considered the best type 3 in any plate. That is true. And people play it, the catalog value on that um, is um, 
$5,500 against $1,500 for a number eight from plate, plate four. Yep. Yeah, so even that's the exact reason why I think that number five, if it didn't have its own number, because 99R2 doesn't have its own number, but it has a listing that shows that it's a very valuable stamp, you could just as easily have number seven from that position and have it be a very valuable stamp also. But in the Scott catalog, 99R2 has a separate number eight in parentheses listing and has always had a separate listing from the other number eights. Yes, except that it's and still it's, just it's a still, number eight. Well, it's not listed. It's listed as a separate, totally separate listing. Yeah, so you could have number seven from... Seven or excuse me, yeah, number seven and a sub of number seven, although it would move up because you'd get rid of number five. Let's call it a number three. Number three with a separate listing for seven R1 early. And again, you know, I don't want to confuse people. Number three is because the actual number three in the Scott's catalog, Val, in the Scott's catalog. So number one was issued in 1847, number two was issued in 1847. Number three was issued in 1876. Number four was issued in 1876. Number five was issued in 1851. Can you see the difference there? <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you had like a, you know, if you went back in time, you could have U.S. number three being the one cent stamp and then another listing underneath it for 99R2 and also for 7R1. And I think that that would be more beneficial to the collecting community and far less confusing. That's your opinion. That's my opinion. But I wasn't trying to sell stamps back in the 1890s. So obviously Scott had some reason for doing what they did. What do you think it was? Oh, I totally because uh, if it has its own catalog value or it has its own catalog number, we can charge more for it. I mean, I don't, I don't think that anybody here is going to argue that it wasn't a marketing ploy. Albert, are you going to argue that it wasn't a marketing ploy? I don't think it, when you write a catalog, you try to include what you think is important. So I don't, I, I, if you, I don't think that the people who wrote the Scott catalog. Back when they first included oh, no, four or five, was they were as much interested as the marketing as much oh, no, as trying no, no, to be no, no, accurate. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Who who is the catalog named after? J. Walter Scott. And he was not a stamp dealer. Oh, right? of course he was. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they did not. But they did not. They did not quantify those stamps until basically about the 1890s, 1880s, and 1890s, when they could get money for them. Well, they were getting money for him anyway. Yeah, it's just that they were getting a lot less. If you look at what, if you look at what a lot of rare stamps originally sold for when they were found, you know, they sold for five dollars. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing uh, advertisements up until like the 1920s, where you could buy Scott number 11s or maybe number 33s. Scott number 33s, which are number 11s and number 10s. And they would sell them to you by the hundred for like a dollar. 
and they'd have to sell it a dollar because it just isn't worth monkeying with it if you don't get a hundred of them. <laughs> That's where the term bundleware comes from because they're literally bundles of stamps that are tied together with little pieces of thread. Yep. Which, by the way, uh, tell people how these plates were put together because, you know, there are some sheets that were found, but not very many. Well, that's the importance of having multiples and big pieces on cover, and you can overlap. You can actually overlap the images to actually um, put together the all 200 positions. The one plate that's not been finished, uh, is, that's not been finished, is plate 11 because we just don't have the biggest multiples of block of nine, and that's that's still an ongoing an ongoing uh, ongoing work. I know that they've gotten about 150 of the positions done out of 200, but that's it. Yep. One of the reasons is is that the, that those plates, because it, it was toward the end of the of that particular plate, they got their the plate production was much better, so that they, there's not so many um, plating marks, small scratches, uh, double transfers, um, um, small parts of the design that are left out from the transferring process. It's not as easy to determine the plate position as it is with the early plates. Um, some plates are worth substantially more in the one cent, like a stamp from plate three, because they just didn't print, print many images before the plate broke. So uh, on that, our sympathies to Mr. Dixeller and his family, and uh, you will be missed. Now, for somebody who wants to do something that's just a lot of fun, but there's not a lot of money in it, um, the, uh, the two stamps of Hawaii, the picture of Honolulu Harbor, the brown one's got number 75, or the rose one's got number 81. You're talking about a stamp that gets a catalog value of $1 each. Um, there was a man named Albert Schwalm that made a very good little book about plating those stamps. So if you wanted to try plating it, you could do that for a very minimal amount of money. I did that. It is fun. It is a really, really cool stamp with a cool history. And it isn't difficult. There are significant plate markings on them. And of all of them, there's only one stamp that's valuable. And that way, if you see it, you pick it up for a dollar. And it's called the Comet or the Flying Goose. And that is uh, a good play. You know, you, Becca, you were asking, you know, where a person would start? Yes. Start with uh, Hawaii Honolulu Harbor Stamp. That is a good one. I think it sounds like fun. It's something I may try. Yeah. And you actually have a large number of double transfers, and you actually have one or two triple transfers on the stamp. Yeah, huge number of double transfers, huge number of position dots, huge number of uh, frame line varieties. I think out of the entire plate, you're going to have difficult with, difficulty with like about five stamps. And all the rest will fall right into place. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. 
The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. <laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come to go. If this still clown was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.